First of all, from Numbers chapter 14. Then the Lord said, I have pardoned according to your word, but truly as I live and as all the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord, none of the men who have seen my glory and my signs that I did in Egypt and in the wilderness and yet have put me to the test these ten times and have not obeyed my voice shall see the land that I swore to give to their fathers and none of those who despise me shall see it. So now we'll flip over to page 1206 starting at chapter 5 verse 11. About this we have much to say and it is hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food, for everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith towards God and of instruction about washings, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. For it is impossible to restore again to repentance those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come. If they then fall away, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed and its end is to be burned. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. For God is not so unjust as to overlook your work and the love that you showed for his sake in serving the saints as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes 
an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Thanks, Wendy. Well, good morning, all. Yeah, there we go. We'll, we'll get there. We'll learn. Um, it's great for us to be together. My name's Andy, and I'm uh, looking forward to digging into this passage. Um, I tell you what, though, it has been a wrestle this week, a, a real wrestle this week, hasn't it? I don't know if you were tuning into that reading. I think this is one of the most curliest passages we have in the New Testament. Um, you can kind of feel the weight of it, the weight of this warning. Have a look again at uh, chapter 6, verse 4. Um, open up your Bible there. It says, For it is impossible... In the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance. Serious. Quite scary words. Heavy, weighty words of warning. It, it raises a lot of questions, doesn't it? Can, can Christians actually fall away? And if, you know, if they do, is it, is it actually impossible for them to come back? Is there something too far that God won't let them come back? You know, will he say, no, nope, that's enough, I'm done, you're done? These words can cause us all sorts of angst, can't they? Uh, some of, some of us just love the kind of academic debates, going, okay, who's who at the zoo here and just wants to talk about that. But for many of us, it's actually quite painful. It's quite a real weighty question for our own lives. If Christians can fall away, how do I know that I'm not going to? How do I know that God isn't going to ditch me in the end? I mean, maybe you're here and you've actually been away from the things of God and Christianity and you're, you're interested in coming back and thinking, is, is the door shut? Can I, can I come back? I mean, many of us, many of us know friends and family, loved ones who were following Jesus, who were, you know, leading youth group, kids' church, up on the band, all those sorts of things, but now... They're not here, they're not in church and they've walked away from Jesus, they're not following. See, is there any point to pray for these people? We can just feel sad and, ho and hopeless and a lot of pain. I mean, it could just be just flat out confusing, can't it? Because <laughs> there are so many passages in the New Testament which want to be really clear that God keeps people to the end. 
Here's one for you on the screen, John chapter 10, verse 27. Jesus wants to give us assurance. He says, My sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. You know, no one can snatch you. You have eternal life secure. Here's another one, Romans chapter 8. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor present, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, or anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing can separate us from God. Christians are safe in his hands, totally done deal. But <laughs> there's a warning. He will bring us home, but we have this real warning in Hebrews 6 about the dangers of falling away. See, what are we to do with them? What do we make of them? I mean, warnings are part of everyday life, aren't they? They come up on your car, you know, when you run out of fuel, the kind of warning light. Uh, here's a warning from in Maroubra, you know, the walk from South Maroubra around to Malabar. You know, danger. Do not go near the edge. Uh, you know, warnings, they kind of have two key elements, don't they? They have a danger. There's an edge, a cliff. If you fall off, it's not going to end well for you. And they have a kind of a recommended way of avoiding the danger. Stay clear of the edge. Uh, don't explore the rocks around Maroubra there. Stay on the path. Now, the thing about warnings is that not supposed to make us doubt, you know, oh, I've seen the warning sign now. I don't know if I'm going to be able to walk around this headland anymore. I'm not going to be able to make it to the end. Now, they're, they're function to kind of uh, ensure us, to enable us that we will arrive, that we can walk around the headland. And I think the, the warning passage we have in God's word kind of operate like that for us. They're actually God's means of preserving us, of ensuring us that we'll make it home safely to the promised rest which is assured in Christ. Now, the context which we're, we're, we've jumped in is helpful for us. We are working our way through Hebrews. And if you remember, Hebrews is writ, written, or as a sermon, actually preaching to a group of people who are in danger of drifting away. Uh, they're tempted to go back to their old ways. And, you know, they're tempted to go back to what their family is doing, back to Judaism, the old covenant way. I mean, there's less heat that way. And they're, you know, they're quite comfortable with that system. And Hebrews wants to persuade them and us time and time again, don't leave Jesus. If you leave Jesus, you're left with nothing. See, how is it that Hebrews can help us to hold firm to the promises and heed the warning that he has for us? This is what I want to look together this morning. And I'll tell you what, it's, it's probably going to find it unsatisfactory. <laughs> There's a tension, I think, that we have to live with. I want to do it under three headings, a real danger, a real warning, and a real comfort. Uh, so the first point is a real danger from verses 11 to 6 verse 3. You know, these Christians, these Hebrew Christians, they know some stuff about Jesus, but they have a real problem and a real danger. And the danger is that they're lazy, that they're actually not growing up as Christians. And they're just, they don't have a real deep understanding of God's word. Have a look in verse 11 there. He says, About this, 
uh, we have much to say and it's hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. Uh, Our section that we ended last week had just introduced Jesus as our great high priest in the order of Melchizedek and he's going to come back to that in chapter 7 and our passage is kind of like an interruption to his train of thought here, right? So if you, you know, where we were last week, verse 9, you have a look at that. He says, you know, you're talking about Jesus, although being made perfect, he became a source of eternal salvation to all who obey and designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Chapter 7, verse 1, for this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham. It's, a, it's an interesting little, you know, insertion of where, what he wants to say to these, these Christians here. He's saying, he interrupts his thought there because he's saying, you guys are in a great danger. You, you, these things, these things about Melchizedek, you've become dull of hearing. Literally, that word is lazy. Literally, it's like, it's sluggish. It's the same word that he uses in 6 verse 12, where he says, you know, we want you to have that hope until the end so that you may not be sluggish, but be imitators. He's saying, you guys are really unfit. You're out of shape. You're lazy when it comes to the things of God and his word and understanding God's word. Uh, NIV says they're no longer trying to understand. They've just given up. Now this idea of understanding God's word and hearing God's word has been coming up time and time again, hasn't it? Chapter 2, we ought to pay careful attention to what we hear lest we drift. Chapter 3 and 4, we get that constant refrain, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. At the end of chapter 4, he says that the word of God is like a, a living, a two-edged, sharper than a two-edged sword. And now, 5.11, he's come back to the same theme. You guys are just dull. <laughs> You're lazy of hearing God's word. See, what's going on for them? Well, verse 12, he, says, he tells them, they haven't grown up. He says, for, for though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again. You need someone to teach you again the basic principles and oracles of God. Uh, Where am I? Oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food, for everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child, but solid food is for the mature, for those who have powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good for evil. So he's saying... It's, it's shameful and embarrassing where you guys are at. You know, you, you guys should be those who are mature and teaching others, yet you're still on baby food. You're not growing up, you're still sipping milk from a sippy cup. Uh, you've been Christian for years, but you can't tell. You never know because you're, you're a baby. You're an infant still on milk. See, when you're new to the things of Christ, you know, being on milk, is what you need to be on. You need to get the foundations. You need to understand what's going on. It's good and right to get established and ask the fundamental questions. But an adult who can only feed themselves milk through a sippy cup, that's a sad and sorry image, isn't it? He's, he's, I mean, he's, having, he's not holding back his punches here, is he, to them? See, instead of these people who... You know, are in growth group, they ought to be leading growth group. Maybe they're not leaving their families in God's word at home or helping out with kids' church or just the one anothering we do after church. They're not making any progress. They've tapped out. There's no growth. Uh, maybe they just think, gosh, this guy preaches too long and too boring. 
which I apologise if that's you. Uh, but there's just no desire in their heart. They're lazy and they're in great danger. And his desire is for them to grow up, to be spiritually fit as adults, who, verse 14, train themselves in God's word so that their minds and their thoughts and their actions would be like God himself, able to discern right and wrong. Notice it's not just head knowledge in verse 14, but it's actually living in response, in obedience. There's a wisdom that comes about by going deep into God's work. 6 verse 1, he says, it's critical that we grow deep and grow in, in maturity. Therefore, 6 verse 1, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity. Not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith towards God and of instructions about washing, but the laying on of hands and resurrection from the dead and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. See, this command to go on to maturity is kind of the key idea in this section. Uh, interestingly, uh, the ESV doesn't pick it up, but the NIV does, that this is in a passive voice. Uh, so where it says, let us go on to maturity in 6 verse 1, the NIV helpfully picks up that it's, it, it says, let us move beyond elementary teaching about Christ and be taken forward to maturity. You know, that, that is, the, it's a, God is taking you forward into maturity. This is God's work of maturing you. Now, that makes sense of verse 3, doesn't it? Because verse 3, you're kind of like, why, why is he asked if this we do if God permits? Taking us forward, us growing into maturity is something that you cannot do without God working within you. But it's equally true that we, might, we must not be lazy and resist God's work, the Spirit, who wants us to grow in our understanding. Don't resist the Spirit's work in our lives. See, moving beyond the elementary teachings of Christ isn't kind of ignoring uh, or letting go, but it's building on them as a foundation. Uh, I'm not going to have time to go through the, the basics here, but really the faith and repentance about entering, I think, uh, baptism and laying hands about joining, participating in that community, and the, the resurrection judgment is the goal of, and the destination of all Christians. It's the ABCs of Christianity. He wants them to have that sure and certain foundation and to grow up and to mature. But he's worried. He's really worried about them. Because he th he's like, you guys don't want to move on. You're in a real danger. And I wonder whether there's some of us here this morning that are in that same danger. We need to hear this warning. We are still spiritual babies. We have a sippy cup in our hand. We complain about the length of growth group. We complain about all sorts of things, but we still don't, are not able to understand or teach our kids or family or others the basic truths because we've just gotten lazy with understanding God's word. We're cruising along and apathetic to the things of God. Can I say, if there, there might be some of those amongst us, but there's so many amongst us who have a deep hunger for God's word. I, I just love the conversations after church where we ask each other and we want to sit underneath and reflect, what does this mean for our life? How do we live this out? Uh, question time, all, all sorts of things where the people are just hungering for God's word. And I thank God for that work of his spirit in your life. 
Can I just plug again that you want to take every opportunity to deepen your understanding so that you would be wise in this world that God has you, that you would be wise in your journey home. So friends, if you aren't in a growth group yet, can I just plug that and say that is a way that you can do that in community and get the help of others and so that you can help each other move forward into maturity and deeper understanding. The second thing I want to let you know, I think Simon will talk more about this, is we do have a stretch night this week on this passage. Uh, it's Thursday night, so if you, know, if you go, I, I really want to go deeper into things of God so I can be mature, uh, then I'm not going to be on milk but on solid food, come along, dig into God's word, ask lots of questions. Don't be embarrassed if you don't know something. Just ask it, it's great. Friends, growing up in God's word really matters not just because it's shameful and embarrassing, but because it's actually a really, it's really dangerous, dangerous for us to be lazy in God's word because here's where the warning comes in 6 verse 4. See, there's a real warning of the impossibility of repentance if you walk away from Jesus. 6 verse 4, It is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance. How do we make sense of this? Isn't this the wrestle that the author wants us to have? We're holding firm to God's truths and promises, but also this real warning. There's a whole bunch of ideas there's a bit, like I've read seven different options. The, the three main ones, I think, and I, I'll take you through it, I don't think this is just a hypothetical warning, you know, kind of just a warning to get the hearer's attention so that they might actually listen to God's word. You know, I don't think he's saying, you know, don't fall away, you Christians, because uh, if, you, if you do, you can't come back, but actually it's only a hypothetical because you can't actually fall away. Um, God isn't kind of... He's not like a parent, you know, making those idle threats to your kids. You know how you say to your kids, I've told you a thousand times, you know, if you don't get that iPad and put your clothes on, I'm going to throw it out the window. You know, it's not like an idle threat that if you don't do something and you're going to get rid of it. Um, no, God, he issues real threats, real warning. He never lies. He can't lie to us in his word. I like this idea because it kind of holds tightly to the idea of God preserving us. But I don't think it's much of a warning if it can't actually happen, right? It doesn't really make sense. It's like saying, me saying to you guys, be careful about this brick wall when you go to walk through it. Like, as in, you can't actually walk through the brick wall. So it's, it's a useless warning. And, you, and people are like, what the heck is he talking about? It's a useless warning because none of us can walk through a wall. So, you, you know, what's the point of warning us for something that's not actually going to happen? Um, it's my point. But more than that, God can't lie. So he can't warn of a possibility of something that actually can't happen. Uh, and I just think this, first, this option doesn't really do justice to what the passage is saying. Now, I grew up thinking that this, uh, this person that is talking about here is not actually a true converted Christian. Uh, and I've kind of toed and froed with this option this week. Is it, is it actually a converted, true, genuine believer here? You know, and what I thought maybe is lots of people think, it's like they've, they've had a partial Christian experience. 
And so, you know, the list here of what, what he's describing, uh, a non-Christian could experience. You know, they've only partially tasted. They haven't totally eaten the heavenly gift and the goodness and the power of God's word. Or, you know, they've shared in the Holy Spirit by being in the community of the church and the blessing that has been around. And so the idea is that you can appear to be a Christian, uh, being around church, but not actually be born again. Now, I like this, this position. I think theologically it, it's helpful. It makes sense of our experience where people have claimed to be Christian and, and left. Um, you know, and you can kind of think it might be like the soils that Jesus talked about, the third soil that kind of grew up and then was choked. But the problem I have is the language seems to say that they're Christians. It's like, it, they seem to say they're, they're Christians. Like, the key words, you know, that you wrestle with are the word tasted. Um, how does Hebrews use that word tasted? We'll flick back to chapter 2, verse 9. <clears throat> Uh, this is where he's talking about the Lord Jesus. And he said, but we see him, Jesus, who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honour because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. I, I don't think Jesus kind of partially nibbled at death, right? He fully embraced death. Uh, he, he tasted it. He partook of it fully. Uh, see, I think taste in Hebrews, he's using it as to fully experience. He, like Jesus fully experienced death. So I don't see why he would use a different word to say that he's only partially partaken um, of the heavenly gift and but down a bit further taking the goodness of the word of God. So I think it's the, saying the same thing in both places. It's talking about someone who has tasted the heavenly gift, who had full exposure to God's word. What about the word shared there? Uh, you know, they've shared in the Holy Spirit. Can that be partial? Well, that, that word is used a number of times. Um, in chapter 3, verse 1, we, we share in our heavenly calling. Uh, turn back to chapter 3, verse 14, another time it's used. Uh, he says, 3, verse 14, For we have come to share in Christ, if we indeed hold to our original confidence to the end. <clears throat> See, Christians share in Christ. We're, we're companions with Christ. It's a description of a Christian. Uh, okay, partake, you know, share, taste it. What about the, the idea of enlightened uh, in 6 verse 4? They've once been enlightened. Turn over to chapter 10 verse 32. It's a real wrestle as we got God's word to go, what exactly is he saying to us? Have a look at, the, he, he uses this phrase, I think, about their conversion uh, of the, the um, Jewish Christians there. Verse 30, chapter 10, verse 32, he says, But recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings. So I think he's talking about his conversion there in terms of enlightenment. Uh, now add to this, verse 6, in chapter 6, verse 6, come back there. It says... Chapter 6, verse 6, and, and then, you know, having fallen away, it's impossible to restore them again to repentance. See, how could they again repent if they had not already repented and put their faith in Jesus? 
Dear friends, all, all I'm trying to argue here is that I think this is a real warning for real Christians of a real possibility that if you don't listen, if you don't continue to grow up in your maturing and understanding, you may reach a point where you drift so far that you reach a point that there, you cannot come back. I think it's intended for us to wake up. It's, a, it's an intention for us to wake up to that real danger, that real warning. Now, I think it's something that we ought to have a healthy fear of. Not terror, but a, a real, genuine fear of the warning of waking up one day and being so far adrift from the things of God that we won't repent and come back. Now, I think the point of it is to drive us to our knees so that we would pray to God, pray to God that he would keep us safe and growing and faithful. But how do we hold this real warning for real Christians and the promises of God? I think it, it's, it's we need to think through the how question. How does God preserve us and hold us to the end? See, how does he ensure that Christians persevere? How does he ensure that nothing will snatch us out of his hands? Well, I think the way he does that is by giving us real warnings with real dire consequences throughout the Bible. And he's calling us to not fall away. And how does he do it? Well, he puts the warning in front of us and then he works in our heart by his spirit to heed these warnings and his word. And that's, that's, what he, that's what he does in us and through us and so that we would listen to this warning and go, gosh, God, help me to stick with Jesus. Help me never to drift. I think it's in this way that he keeps us safe as his children. Now, an analogy I've, I've heard that I like, uh, and you can tell me if you like or not later, is like, imagine a cliff, right? You're up on a cliff and there's a clear drop all around you uh, and if you fall off like a cliff, you, you will die and you'll plummet to your death. Now, if you're on, up on the top of the cliff and that's your Christian life, Jesus is there and he is your safety, he's your anchor. But if you kind of drift away from Jesus towards the end, uh, the, warning, the warning God gives us is like these warning signs as you get close to the edge of the cliff, saying, danger. Don't, don't drift away from Jesus because if you fall off the edge, you will, you will plummet to your death. You'll be destroyed. So the way God keeps us with him in Jesus isn't by building a brick wall around all ends and enclosing it so that it's impossible for the Christian to fall off. No, he keeps us persevering by giving us warning signs. So when you, you could see the edge of the cliff... And so you're in danger of drifting, he says, danger, stay well clear, come back to Jesus. See, and not only does he give us the warning signs, but he gives us the spirit in us that when we see the warning signs, we come back to Jesus. I'm not going to go there. Let's stay well clear of that. So I think it's, this is the, the warning signs are how God preserves us and keeps us as his children. And they are to here to cause us to pray, to see the real danger and to cling to Jesus. 
Now, it's not about looking within. Do I have enough faith? Do I trust enough? Uh, have I done enough? Because every time you do that, you'll end up in despair and in hopelessness. But it's actually about hearing, seeing the warning signs and running to Jesus, our great high priest, and trusting in his promises. And the, the author, he expects this warning to be effective in their lives. He doesn't want it to freak them out, but encourage them about how they're going. And he gives us, lastly, two comforts. Uh, and I'll go the, through these really quickly. Uh, he gives us two comforts. The first comfort in verses 9 to 12 is about their past, is about their track, track record. Have a look at verse 9. He says, Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. Do you hear what he's saying there? This is the only time he calls his hearers their beloved, but he's saying, I know you love God. I've seen how you love people around you. He's seen the crops of faith and love appear as, as fruit of their evidence of God's work in their life. See, they've been transformed. Uh, they've been through trials and temptations. And he says, not only uh, is it that that's, I can see the evidence in your life, but God will not overlook that. It's God who is doing the looking here and the determining here. And so he's confident, not in them, but that God is at work. He knows, he sees, and he's not unjust. The best way here to persevere is not to look within, but to, to look to God and how great God is. And this is the second reason for confidence and comfort, is that God has promised it. Uh, this is what verses 13 to 20 really spell out. We don't have time to go into the detail, but essentially, in a nutshell, it's uh, God makes promises, God doesn't lie, he keeps his promises, and then to top it all off, to double it up, he makes an oath with a promise. Now, I would love, hopefully you get to go through this in your growth group when you get to explore Abraham and Sarah and the promises made in the 25 years between, all that sort of stuff. But essentially he's saying, God is a promise maker and a promise keeper and he cannot lie, he will keep his word. Be encouraged. The purpose is to give us confidence that God will do this. Uh, that's why he lands and ends with that anchor we have in heaven. What a, what a wonderful image we have. It's a wonderful image, isn't it? Uh, verse 19, he says, We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. See, this is an anchor not going down to the bottom of an ocean, but going up into the heavenly realms with the same purpose to keep us firm and secure. Whether or not you believe it or not, it will happen because Christ is our anchor. He has gone through the curtain to the other side into heaven and he assures you and I that when we trust and follow and listen to him, we are secure. He is our anchor. Keep our eyes on him. Don't look back and look forward. Friends, can a genuine Christian fall away? Not a chance. God has got them. But he keeps them through the warnings. They were the ones who heed. Ought we to pray for our family and friends? Yes, we ought to, because it's the same warning 
and comfort that, of the gospel that brings them back to Jesus. Friends, if you are here and you're unsettled about this warning, can I say that could be a good sign that the Spirit is at work in your life and calling you to draw near to Him, to look to Him for the confidence you have in Jesus and to go deep and not be lazy and heed the warnings? Friends, our confidence is in our Heavenly Father to keep us safe. He's our only hope. Always look to Jesus. It's not about our conversion or our experience, but it's about us keeping our eyes fixed on him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just thank you for the depth and wonder of your word that you revealed to us. Thank you that you do hold us fast. Thank you that you make promises and you keep them. And Father, that you help us to persevere by giving us signs that by your spirit we obey and we heed. Help us to keep trusting in your son and help us to grow up into maturity so that we will never fall away and that we'll be with you for all eternity. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.